good to see each one this morning, and I hope that our time together this morning will be both edifying and productive and encouraging so that you and I can be the kind of people that God wants us to be. For the past few weeks on Sunday mornings, we have been considering the book of 1 Corinthians because that is the topic and the book that our children are studying in Bible Bowl. Some of the things that we have learned in these chapters can be uplifting and encouraging and helpful for us in the Lord's church to be what God wants us to be. And this morning we're going to study chapter 8 and we're going to look at stumbling blocks. And if you would, I'd like for you to take your mind for just a moment and reflect back to what was existing almost 2,000 years ago. Many new converts were struggling to overcome their former selves. You've got to imagine, here's a person who has been a pagan. He has been worshiping at various temples, and he has come in contact with those who've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus Christ died for the sins of all men. That he was the son of the true and living God who made everything in this world. And yet at the same time, we recognize that those people, once converted, still had a strong pull because of their former friends, because of society, to go back into their former lifestyles. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, we read, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they themselves promise liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. We recognize that many of those people just getting out of the sinful past get entangled into it again. That same sort of difficulty still exists today. You may have a young man or a young woman who recognizes now that my sins are my burdens. And now I need to lay them aside. I need to be a child of God. I need to be a Christian. Have my sins forgiven. Once having done so, then to be pulled by the people of this world. 1 Corinthians 8, along with chapter 10, addresses a challenge that's affecting the church. And the church should care for one another. When I see you being challenged by sin, I should realize that I need to do something. I need to act in a particular way so that I can be able to have a good influence on you rather than an evil one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25, Paul would say that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. That means I should care about what happens to you. You should care about what happens to me. I should think about how my life influences you for good and not for evil. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take chapter 8 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and look at the situation we have to understand what's going on because there's a, a background behind what is occurring here. Number two, we're going to have to look at the seriousness of it in verses 7 through 12. It was a very soul-threatening situation. And then finally, the solution in verse 13. 
Let's read verses 1 through 6, and I'd encourage you to focus on these words as we read through them. Now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the things or eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Now as you consider those first few things, You have to realize this is the second question they have asked. Last Sunday morning we studied chapter 7. And in chapter 7 and verse 1 he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. They had written Paul and asked some specific questions. And this is the second of the questions. And it is regarding the things that have been sacrificed to idols. Now, that's a foreign concept to most of us. Most of us do not go to the grocery store and ask the question, was this animal from which this piece of meat taken, was it offered to an idol? Where we go to buy it is not something that is usually out of the ordinary. But you've got to take your mind back almost 2,000 years to the 1st century, not the 21st century. And you've got to put yourself in a city like Corinth, not like McMinnville, Tennessee. So for a few minutes, let me explain to you the background of the way that people thought about things sacrificed to idols. It was believed that demons desired to possess man. And they did so through the eating of meat. Now, for us, that just, again, seems to be such a foreign concept. But you have to remember, in the first century, there was real demon possession. Do you remember in Acts 16, as Paul came to the city of Philippi, that there was a young woman who had a spirit of divination? We read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we realize that these demons actually possessed people. So it was real in the first century. And people began to cry through their speculation, through their uh, skepticism, and uh, through their, you know, just trying to make sure that they could have some explanation for what was going on, would attribute it to demons and getting through the eating of meats. And so in their minds, the only way to prevent a possession was having the meat to be sacrificed to a god. And when it was sacrificed at a temple, then that meat would no longer infect you. And so because of that, there would often go to the various idols' temples and carry their meat there, sacrifice it to an idol. Part of the meat would go to the priest. Part of the meat would be eaten by the person either there or later at home. 
obviously the priests could not consume all the meat that was sacrificed, which was given to them. And some of it was sold there in their various temples. Some of it was also sold in the meat markets. When we get to chapter 10, Paul will talk a little bit more about this. But I want you to understand at this point the mindset of that first century person living in Corinth. You see, Corinth had at least six major pagan temples. I've been to Corinth several times, and as you go to that city, the first thing that you see when you drive up is that Temple of Apollo that is right there in the very front entrance to the city. Right around from it was another major temple. And then there was one on the mountain, which is behind the city, Acro-Corinth, to the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And not only was this so prominent, but it also included fornication, which may explain why the questions were asked in chapter 7 regarding fornication. And so these being tied together, a person would say, now what must I do? Now here's the hard difficulty. You are a new convert. You still have many friends and perhaps relatives who are a part of that pagan society. And it was hard to avoid the social occasions where such food would not be served. Maybe you would go to the wedding of someone in your family. And there would be meat sacrificed to an idol be there. Maybe you would go to a feast like we would think about going to a birthday party or some other event. And that meat be used. And what that would do, that produced a lot of questions in their minds. I'm trying to think like they would have thought. Number one, can I eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? Number two, can I go to an event where such meat is served or, when we get to chapter 10, may be served? How do I act or react to other Christians regarding the eating of meat that has been sacrificed? You see, all these questions are relating to this. And if I am in this situation, you begin to understand the the gravity of it, which leads us into the idea of what he said in verses 1 and 2. And he says, We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now when you read that word knowledge, it may, you know, you just may think, well, we all know something, or we all know about this, but that's not really the way the word knowledge is used when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. When he's writing 1 Corinthians, the knowledge that he has reference to is a miraculous knowledge that was given by revelation. And you say, really? Is that the way he uses it? Let's look and see how Paul uses the word or the term in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's giving the various miraculous gifts. And in the middle of that is the miraculous knowledge. You go on to chapter 13. Verses 1 and following. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I give all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Then you drop down to verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Now listen carefully. Where there is knowledge, it shall vanish away. The way Paul uses the term knowledge is a miraculous knowledge that was given. And here you have people who have this knowledge in the church given by a God to them. Today we don't have that. The way you and I gather knowledge is by studying and learning. But they had that knowledge. And he says that knowledge puffs up. Some people had taken those miraculous gifts and become arrogant and proud with them. Paul said what's better is love. He said knowledge puffs up, love edifies. Love is the better one of these. In chapter 16 and verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. Chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. You see, the difference is the miraculous knowledge was only for a particular period of time. Faith and hope also were greatly valuable. But when you get to verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. Now, I think I've tried to establish the situation that the church was facing. You had people who had knowledge. God had revealed it to them. You had people who were influenced by these things being sacrificed to idols. Now, how serious of a situation or an issue is this? Let's pick up with verse 7 and read through verse 12. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with the consciousness of the idol until now eat of it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone who sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will not his conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren, you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now let's explore the seriousness of this. Not everyone had processed the revelation. Paul says there's not in everyone that knowledge. Not everybody understands what has been revealed. And you see, the problem is everybody thought 
If I know it, you ought to know it. And there's the vestiges of old thinking there. That is, those people who have been pagans, all of that influence was still in them. You know, here I am. I've been a Christian most of my life. And I see somebody, perhaps, who has been converted out of nothing. Or maybe out of paganism in the sense of worldliness. Or maybe they've been converted out of a denomination. And they don't know what I know. You see, Paul is trying to get them to see the seriousness that not everybody has the same level of understanding. The weak conscience then is thus defiled. And someone says, what, is, what do you mean by a weak conscience? The conscience is that part of man that says, this is good or this is bad based upon what you know. And sometimes people will violate their conscience because they don't know any better. When you go to Romans chapter 14, Paul addresses with the Romans the same issue that he's addressing here. And he explains by saying, It is good neither to eat meat, nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Here's a man who finds himself being presented with meat sacrificed to an idol. If he eats it, he thinks, you know what? I'm participating with that idol. I am still doing a part of that. We can't imagine how strong of a pull that was. And Paul says, if that man does that, he sins. And you see, here's the issue. The reaction of the weak to the actions of the strong. What you find is the strong person says, I've got liberty. I can do because I know what I'm doing. The weak person says, I'm not sure, but I see you doing it, so I guess I can do it too. Let me give you an illustration which I think might be helpful. Let's say, for instance, a group of us are going to go to some southeastern Asian nation to do mission work. And let's say as we're walking down the street, one of us says to the other, I think I'm getting hungry. And we look over there on the side and there's a a stalk of bananas and several oranges. And we see in the background a little Buddha sitting. And we look at the price over here and we say, that's a really good price. I think I'll go buy those. And you've got behind you somebody who you have just taught that Jesus is Lord, that there's only one God and He's the God in heaven, and that Buddha is not God. And you go over there and you buy some of those bananas and you buy some of those oranges. And then that person who's just been converted out shakes their head and says, well, I guess I can go back and participate. I guess I can be a Buddhist and a Christian too. 
And what you do because of your actions, you didn't think about that. You cause that person to stumble. You cause them to fall. You see, the liberty of one can become the stumbling block of another. But you say, but I know there's nothing there but oranges. There's nothing there but bananas. In the city of Corinth, there were some who says, I know that there's nothing in that meat but just meat. But you see, here's the problem. Not everybody has that knowledge. And so he says, if the weak brother sees you eating in an idol's temple. You see, the the man who has the knowledge says, there's nothing here. It's just meat. Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Oh, there's the bottom line. Shall a brother perish because you get to do what you want to do? Liberty can become a sin if it adversely affects a brother. That means if what I'm doing causes my brother to sin, he sins because of what I did. And what results is two sins. First of all, the sin of the weak brother because he's violated his conscience. But the second sin is mine. Because I didn't consider, think about, and care about my brother. And thus both sin against Christ and cause two souls to be lost. And thus making Christ's death in vain. Now that leads me to the third part and that is the solution. Obviously if you've got a bad situation... And you have, it's very serious. What you need to find is a solution that works for the strong and for the weak. Let's look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The solution is, is for the stronger brother to forego his liberty lest he make his brother sin, make him stumble. That means that I have to deny myself something, even though it may be fine, it may be okay, it may be permissible, but if it's going to cause somebody else to lose their soul, I need to forego that. In Romans chapter 15, Paul said exactly the same thing to the Romans. He put it like this. We then who are the strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. See, the truth is, some things are more important than others. Jesus, when he came, could have came to this world with glory and splendor and magnificence, but he didn't. The Lord could have come and had people to surround him with all kinds of worship, but he didn't. The Lord came and was sacrificial. He was the one who put the towel and washed the disciples' feet because he said, I'm going to put the needs of others ahead of myself. 
That is a principle which God expects us to always live by. Philippians 2 and verse 4. Not looking each of you to his own things, but also to the things of others. Some things are more important than others. Here's the conclusion. Churches must learn to care about all the souls of the members, both weak and strong. Those of us who have been Christians for many years should not look at the young people who come and are struggling and say, I don't understand why they have such a problem with that. We ought to understand we have been where they were or where they are. And you and I need to realize that some of them have not had the time nor the opportunity to gather the knowledge that you and I have gathered. We ought to think about the way we act toward them to be an encouragement rather than a discouragement to them. And one must watch lest he cause another to stumble. You know, the seriousness of this, I think, should make all of us shudder. In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble... It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You need to think about the effect of what you have on others. But underlying all of this is that we must be loyal to the Lord. Those of us who are weak, those of us who are strong in everything and at all times, I think about the Lord's temptation in Luke chapter 4 and verse 8. Satan came to Jesus, tempted him to turn stone into bread, and he refused. He tempted him to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple, and the Lord refused. He tempted him to try to give up or to acquire everything if he would just fall down and worship the devil And the Lord's response was very simple. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. What that means, whether you're weak or you're strong, whether you are in a time of temptation which is difficult or may even be easy, the Lord must always be at the focus of whom we serve. This morning... Perhaps you're here and not a Christian. We want to encourage you to be obedient to Jesus Christ. It may be important for you to come out of a a lifestyle that's been uh, burdened with sin and you've recognized that Jesus is our only Savior. If you believe in Him, that He's the Son of God, why not repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him and be baptized? More likely... You are here this morning as a Christian. Perhaps you are one of the weak. Perhaps you are one of those who has allowed Satan to tempt you and you gave in. Perhaps an older or wiser or perhaps even stronger Christian has done something and you thought, well, that's okay, I'll go ahead and do that. Regardless of why. If sin is in your life, 
You need to repent of it and come back and be faithful. We're going to sing the song, There's a Fountain Free. And if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing?